Welcome to episode number five of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings you regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.github.io and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange, that's dev, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about this show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave the comments on the website. We appreciate all of your feedback. And now, here are your hosts. My name is Christian. I'm Paul. I'm Peter. I'm David. So maybe you noticed that we changed the picture of the last episode a few days after publishing it. Uh, it was supposed to be a picture of duplication because it had a pair of shoes. But it seems that uh, the Urban Dictionary did not tell us the full uh, meaning of the picture, so we had to change it to a more... I guess uh, the Urban Dictionary actually <laughs> does it very explicitly. Okay. Shoes on a wire. Urban Dictionary tells you everything you want to know. Right. Uh, and so this was... Yeah, we, we, we tried to be witty about it, though, and think about application and dependencies on the string and so forth, though. Apparently there is, for one, there is more meaning to pictures than we anticipated, and second, it's still good that people are trying to actively find out what all these nice pictures that we take mean. Mm. Mm. So now we have something like beach. We have repetition. Ah. A pattern, a repeat, repeating pattern. I have many of those, because I keep collecting them for slide decks if I need to uh, say something about duplication. Oh, cool. So to jump off into the first topic for the day, it's about what is code quality. At the software crafting and testing conference in Linz this year, I joined the discussion on the question what defines code quality, and I want to bring this question to the group here. As part of software quality, I want to make the distinction between external quality of a product, meaning its features, and internal quality concerning the source code. The comparison that I brought up was the product of a manufacturing process, like the power cord of an ironing device, and the blueprint of that power cord. While the quality requirements for the power cord define what should be in that blueprint, there are separate guidelines that define how that blueprint should look like. So when we discuss any common quality criteria, we have to be careful to apply the criteria on the code, not what the code produces. Since source code is text, readability is the first and foremost criterion to think of. And while everyone nods at this seemingly objective fact, it's a highly subjective thing, because readability requires several layers of knowledge of the person reading and writing. Knowledge of the human language, do I know the meaning of the words and semantics? Knowledge of the problem domain, do I, do I understand what shall be built and do I need to understand the terms? Then the knowledge of the programming language, do I understand the syntax in all of their versions? Knowledge of the used libraries, do I understand their concepts? For instance, the stream API of Java. And then also the knowledge of the software development trade as a whole, do I understand that the counters are called I, J and possibly K? Before we jump to other criteria, I uh, would like to open it up to you now. So what do you expect of readable source code? What do you expect of the developers? I, I like it that you already said that the domain language is part of the deal. Because I cannot be expected to look at a new project and understand what's going on without knowing the domain. 
And often that's kind of a killer argument of readability. Everybody should be able to read it. But if I don't know the domain, even the best names will mean nothing to me. So I think the knowledge of the domain is like a prerequisite for a readable code. Let's say I know the domain well, and then I see some code, and it makes use of domain names, then I have a chance to understand it if I see it the first time. Right? Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. But on the other hand, I think if you even did not start really reading the words that you're seeing, but just having skimming over the structure of the code that you see can give you a feeling, is it well-structured? Might I might I be really have a, having a hard time <coughs> finding the points that I really want to dig into? Or is this structured so good that I can probably find the spots where to work on? So you're talking about white space? With structure and there's also like empty lines and how this thing yeah, is laid yeah, out. And, white, that, and white space is part of yeah, reading. All also that, punctuation yeah. is part of reading. Yeah, so and how long are, the, are the, the names and stuff? And the lines and the paragraphs like in a newspaper. So that's, that's, that's all in. Right? Yeah. It's kind of some criteria of readability. So do I have meaningful names? Is, is it like kind of formatted in a way that it's mm. readable? That's approachable, maybe not readable. Uh, Navigation-able, actually. Yeah, yeah. So do I find, uh, I think something was about pattern matching in, in our uh, minds when, when we look at code. So, right. mm. I also think about if, if you're uh, going fast on the, on, on the street <coughs> with the car or with the, with the underground, whatever, and you have maybe a sub-second time to look at uh, advertising, for example, I think maybe if you're not even you not have the possibility to even read every word that you see, but you get the structure and you get the point, you get the message. And I think with, with code it should be ideally the same thing. So even if you haven't already read it, you have the feeling, okay, I, I can skip it or this seems interesting for the problem that I have. The, what what yeah. assumptions are you doing by that? And so what, what is the, on, on which assumption are you building on in order to say, okay, this is a word, a sentence, or a statement in terms of a programming language from which you can expect that people can get it on a, a quick glance. Yeah, it's, I think you, you said the word. It's all about expectations. So if, if you have everybody, of, I think, uh, probably has some expectations how code should look like from a high-level point of view. And if you find that the code you see now the first time seems to more or less match something that you see that you have liked before in other code bases, I think it can be really helpful and make you more comfortable. So you're talking about patterns? So, so uh, but graphical, patterns. graphical patterns, if you just right. see over the, over the, the desert of text, but so you scroll about it. We have only so little because it's all text. We have no, we don't really have patterns beside uh, curly braces or butterfly braces. No, but you have patterns, for example, methods that are obviously just delegating to three other methods. Or you might have a method that obviously seems to be doing very many things and loops and in indentation levels and stuff. So there are graphical patterns that you can maybe see and recognize and like or dislike. And think you are comfortable with it or not comfortable with it. Yeah, okay. In, in, mm -hmm. Your aspect is insofar as, or as, mu as much um, 
a complete new point as I was focusing so far only on the, the content itself. So I reading even mm -hmm. the names themselves, I have to guess is it now the meaning of the words, meaning the variables, meaning the domain, and you are now more on a on a picturesque yeah. stance now. So rather the code as a as a picture and not as a information yeah. provider. So also for example, if you're standing of, uh, in front of a very large building for the first time, and you start you think lots of windows and doors and, and possibilities to interact with this building, you maybe want to get some pattern and see, okay, where's the thing that I will have to go into? And you will have to observe it, you will have to match it with other buildings that you have already interacted with, for That's example. That's an interesting point, Paul. There's <laughs> um, um, uh, Luan Farco, maybe a further thing, he has the idea of Sparrowdex. And Sparrowdex, he has some pictures of code with a certain code smell, so you can't read the lines, it's just a picture of the structure, what we're yeah, talking okay. about. And he shows the decks again and again, and he claims that, uh, showing that to beginners, he can jump five years of experience by just doing a repetitive pattern matching training on the brain for this particular thing. So they can spot duplication just by going over uh, <coughs> this, the structure. And, and mm -hmm. So that would uh, agree with your, your okay, interesting, yeah. idea. Uh, it's a bit ridiculous when you do it because you have to say it out loud, but he explains that you have to say it out loud to get this feedback loop from your, um, I don't know, voice thing in your brain to the other thing is in your brain, whatever. Um, yeah, probably that's true. So, and we already have that by years of scanning code and, and so we yeah. have these patterns. So that seems that we should follow the patterns or not, because patterns are also changing and then we have to unlearn. Sure. For example, today I've been uh, at a F-sharp training and it was more or less the f first time I really got into several hours contact with this language. And of course, code in F-sharp looks different mm -hmm. from this point of view. I don't want to start reading about the characters that I see because they're different as well. But, but, but isn't this the, the, not the most subjective topic you can find about readability, how the code looks like, how it is formatted, how long the lines are, right? Because this is... Do you really think that there is better structure in a code or is it just better known structure for you in a code? You know what I mean? Of course, it's all about personal experience, <coughs> personal preferences, but, yeah. But aren't they a little bit more objective, curious sure, sure. for readability? Sure, sure, sure. I think there is yeah. uh, exactly on this topic, there is a great talk uh, from um, Kevin Henney, mm -hmm. uh, exactly on this. Uh, I will put the name then later in the notes. And he's uh, taking some of these myths and he's showing you what happens when you look at it. So he's like uh, blanking out the code, you have just structure. And why certain patterns, like... Uh, New uh, curly brace in the next line is better for this pattern matching <laughs> than curly brace in the same line. You are laughing because this is a, a maybe no curly like, brace is uh, maybe so. Like Python has it, you immediately have the indentation, so that the problem is also gone away. So there is some kind of scientific uh, proof that this this counts. It's it's it matters, but it's also personal taste, of course. But there are ways that are better. And experience, I think the, the greatest part about and the greatest influence will be experience. Yeah, what are you used to read? Agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. 
And how about all these factors now, the knowledge of the domain, the knowledge of the programming language, the API, and then structure. So from a picturesque view, they, all these aisles can also compensate for lacking in other areas. If I don't know about the domain, I, I'm, I, have, I find it helpful if there is an explicit naming that perhaps helps also that figuring out okay what the domain is about if the code explains the domain to me. By, I know, going I, back to the cutoff of doing a the tennis game, for instance, where it says, okay, the game is won. It's a function. Okay, I don't know when a game is won, but if yet if I jump into the function game is won, I would see then by the, uh, the hopefully, or, well, expressive code lines when the game is won without knowing the domain. That's very interesting what you said, I think, because... I never thought about it, but is it possible to, to learn the domain just by looking at the software, right? That's what you that's what you now explained with this tennis well game. Named, which usually it isn't. I'm it, not sure. It, Maybe for, for very simple domains, but I think for hard domains... I'm not, I'm, I'm yeah. not trying to imply that you get a full grasp of the domain as a whole just by reading the code. It's just... I don't have to train myself on whatever complex domain there is for two years until only afterwards I'm allowed to touch the code. <clears throat> I think that's very important. I never thought about it like this. I always thought, like like you mentioned earlier, that you need to know the domain. I think this was for me undiscussable. If you don't know the domain, you will not be able to write good source code. But if you come to a project after, I don't know, five years, this project already exists, for sure readability can help you to understand, to, to get fast into the domain, but I think it will never be possible to just sit a person to some source code and will tell him this is our project, take a look at it and you will understand the domain, right? Sure. I, I don't I don't think this will happen because you need to know the problems of the domain to understand which solutions the software brings for them, right? right. Because normally normally the software doesn't really explain the problems, it more or less explains the solutions, right? Yeah. And to really understand why it is like this, you need to know what is the problem with software but, needs to solve. Yeah, but I think these two things uh, go and evolve and grow <laughs> together for in sure, parallel. For sure, for sure. What you understand and, and the code that you're writing. Mm. Now I want to clarify that I think you can be productive on the code base without knowing the domain. I Maybe you do not learn the domain only from the code, but you can definitely be productive um, Usually on a new domain, I start with technical changes because they are like kind of safe, so like minor cleanups and fixing mm -hmm. warnings, mm -hmm. and, and you, so you can definitely be productive. Yeah. It, I think it, it just comes more down to this discussion we already had, right? What's the what's the goal of a developer? Is it just uh, writing down requirements in code, or is it really understanding the problem and finding the right solutions? I think if it's more like this, it's harder to write to really bring some benefits to software if you don't know the domain, right? Yeah, but there are different stages when you are in a project. If you're new in a project, it, I agree with you, Peter, you can be productive by not understanding the domain and taking uh, technical challenges. But if you're two years in the project and you're still on that level, that might be a problem, of course. Maybe the end-to-end the -end does still need to be fixed, right? <laughs> That's what you normally do when you come to a project, fix no, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first thing is you, you fix the documentation for first time. It then fix all the skip tests. <laughs> it also feels a little bit like, like going in circles. So going away from the domain or more like into the API that you use, taking again the Java Stream API. 
So if you are used to writing the for loops, then you uh, you have this mm. explicit, explicit and expressive yeah. for loop. Okay, this is now a for loop, and now you realize, okay, wait, there is this Java stream API. I can now skip all the for loops. Now you, as one that learned just about the stream API and sees or believes in the benefits of that of those one liners, if you can mm. condense it down to a one line, you start writing only the stream API. Uh, variants and then the new one, new developer comes in and says, "I don't understand this stream API or if mm. this fluent API. Mm. What is happening here?" And now they have to learn this one and figure out, okay, there is this this follow behind it and what have you, what is in packed into there. And then I've seen it as well in team that first, okay, follows. Now we want to have the stream API and already the first commands come up with, "I miss the days when we wrote just a simple follow." Yeah, yeah. But so it's, it's a team decision yeah, because there's also the concept of, thing again. of yeah. familiarity. Yeah. And I, I learned that in a talk from Michael Feathers, so the guy that, that, that is working effectively with mm. legacy code. Mm. Uh, so you do this new, you use this new feature, and the others don't know because they still have the learning. And after some time, if they can't get it, maybe don't use the new feature. So that's it's, it's two-sided. So uh, familiarity is not. Mm. It can be readable, but it's not familiar to them. But if it's too unfamiliar, then maybe we shouldn't use it, because then it's uh, like they will not understand it. So it's a kind of uh, balance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I, th I think we should not be to have, have too much fear about introducing new things and, and showing other people on the team new stuff that they might not know, and to to get a, a common understanding of if it's beneficial in one case or. If, if not. Yeah, but it has to be, uh, it can only be uh, that far away from the regular, from the from their normal style. Sure. Like uh, I've uh, met people who are very enthusiastic about functional programming and when they are new in the project, they just uh, use some libraries and just do entirely functional in the Java project, mm. which is far away from the regular style. So using lambdas is kind of core Java, so that's expected. But if you do the... Um, Vavra or what, what's the yeah, Viva. Viva and and then do everything immutable and then have all streams all over the place. Maybe that's too far. And, sure. And and again, there is this this tension. Yeah. After some time, it might be okay if everybody used uh, used lambdas and and streams. But I think that's the normal curve. Wow, when you learn a new thing like Link you or, or the Stream API, you want to do everything with it because you find it super cool. After some time, you find out, oh, maybe it was not good to do everything with it. I just do nothing again with it anymore. And at the end, you find a, a good threshold yeah. some, somehow. Mm -hmm. that's, that's and at one point, you also want to decide, or perhaps should be defined, should define. This is also honing back to a question: What do we expect from the developers then? To to get to the to get the source code to a place where it stands the test of time. That you can take this source code and in five five years down the line, you can introduce new team members and they still can work with that. Or can they? What what are the requirements for these new team members? Do they have to understand the stream API? Do they have to understand? Yeah. Is that real at all? I think. Like, uh, is this requirement real at all? Is it not? To be able to have a possible. Well, but what do you mean? Uh, when, you say, when you ask, uh, will this code stand the test of time? It's I think when, when I think maybe least, but it's all. It's but <laughs> when I think about readability, it always boils down for me to one very important point, and this is not a technical point. This is more a domain point. Maybe it's finding the right abstractions, right? Because I don't care if people use for loops or an, an, an stream API or whatever. I really care about if I, as as Paul mentioned earlier, see 
the, the details hidden correctly, right? If I get a flow through the application without knowing all the details and if I need to, I can dig, dig into it deeper, right? That's that's what I that's my definition of of, of readability on code level is to, to to really have the right abstractions, and I think that's a really hard point. But if you made this, it doesn't really matter if you used a for loop inside one of these abstractions or if you didn't. I think this is really what matters at the end, and what makes makes code understandable and readable. You're talking about abstractions yeah. and design, which is more important than implementation details. For sure, for sure. So do you mean then, when you say abstractions on, on text level, in terms of source code, not, I'm mm -hmm. not talking about class design or whatever, but rather source code, do you mean then uh, start with domain names and then break it down into uh, lesser domain yeah. names or other way around? Or is, is this what this you're is one way, yeah. Okay. I think abs abstraction is not on one level, you cannot say, okay, I'm now above the abstraction, now I'm below, right? It's, it's you can abstract on every level. You can abstract in, in classes, you can abstract in, 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 your, in your assembly or in your jar, and you can also maybe abstract even in, in methods if you just say, okay, this is now a variable, this is a variable, and I, for example, split the if condition into two variables to make it more readable, then I have a better abstraction, for example, on a very low level. And I think this is what really makes the, the difference because I think everything, for example, formatting, we have a lot of discussions normally when we start a project about formatting, but at the end it's it's just it's just a decision you have to make. Uh, it's not really that you say, okay, I cannot read this code because it's first formatted or I cannot read this code because it's four, it's a four each or it's a four um, from, 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 from stream. I think it's really that you just at some point don't understand the complexity anymore and then you failed readability, I guess. Huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, breaking mm -hmm. it down. like it. Yeah, I think breaking it down, yeah. That's, that's what you need to do. And you have to do it right. That's that's the hardest point. So would, would this then um, also leverage or at least compensate for any missing knowledge of the person reading in, the, in these various aspects, now be the language being, being the API, being the, the human language, English, for instance, I, if it's also English. I think if you have good abstractions, then, then the language doesn't matter <coughs> kind of until we're at the lowest layers, because there is no language, there's just method calls and class calls. And, and, and the programming language yeah. doesn't yeah. make a difference. Yeah. But the, the yes. natural language makes if you're not yeah. able to read English and if everything is just English text, you have a problem. I, I like this very much what you said because it reminds me a little bit on, on, on what I'm currently working a lot with, with React and, and people also talk about readability there, of course. And there you have exactly this because you, you have a lot of, of JSX, HTML-styled code, um, which looks like HTML at least. And you normally see people who are really good in, in React just using own components on a very high level. So you don't see a diff, you don't see a span, you don't see these native HTML elements. You really just see uh, uh, aggregation of, of, of their own components. And then you can see very, like if you say, okay, you, you, you collapse all, all the, the high level nodes, and then you can click into it and then you see it again, and then you click in it and then see it again. And at the end, you maybe see some real HTML. Um, um, uh, tags and, and this mm -hmm. is I think somehow in the same direction like you said if you really 
find the right abstraction. It doesn't really matter if you're using 4 and 4 each at the end, right? You just see, okay, he calls this method now and the method name says me a little bit about what it does. And if I'm really interested in, then I go down to the metal and, and see what really is done here, right? I guess, yeah. Yeah, well, so also these little things matter on, on, on the lowest levels. I wouldn't say it doesn't for matter. Sure, for sure. But uh, on, the, on the overall, uh, yes. And I think that's uh, this is a good fit what you said with the, with the pictorial view that I brought up at the beginning. Because if I open, let's say, some file with an event handler, and the first thing I see is a for loop and some three times more indentation there, I get nervous because mm. I don't think that could be the proper <laughs> level of abstraction here. So Normally I go for lunch when I see something. Well, you have to be careful not to get to get more weight, right? So <laughs> go to lunch all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Several lunches. But indentation is really good. I think indentation is really a good indicator, for me at least, and it's again yeah. very subjective, but as you said, if there's five levels of indentation in, in just one method, normally I don't understand it anymore. Yeah. So there's this, this, um, which, um, these rules which we did a few years ago, I think, at the... The calisthenics, or is Calisthenics, exactly, yeah. and I also think they said something like one indentation. One level of indentation. Yeah. And I really like this. I think this, this yeah. is... Got easy and, and hard, uh, simple to do a pricing to really avoid indentation. But then, of course, you can start streaming, right? With the stream API, and you put your whole complexity into <laughs> one line. <laughs> you don't have indentation, but nobody understands it still, right? Not intended, though. That, uh, apparently, the stream API gets the flag here in this episode. That was not the intention. That's <laughs> yeah. just one example that we are yeah, sure. It's a new opportunity for messing up, right? Yeah. Right. I, I don't know, uh, there are already projects that use StreamAPR several years, and I'm still waiting to see like a lambda of 1,000 lines. It will be there. It's in, inevitable. Sure. We will see it sooner or later, so it's just everywhere, so it doesn't matter. StreamAPR is okay. It's just what we make out yeah. of it. A chain of 20, 30 method calls. I have seen that already. Yeah. Maybe yeah. 50 would be interesting. Yeah. And then you have exactly the regex problem. If it's mm. if it's working, it's doing amazing stuff. But if it's not working, you have really had That's a hard a reason time. IntelliJ has a stream debugger. Yeah, already. Why? Mm. Because people doing this, they shouldn't, I guess. So we got a stream debugger. But that's again an example. If you if you have this fifteen um, rows of of stream calls, then you ex again just expose too much. Yeah. You don't yeah. find the right abstraction. Mm. Right? Because you, for sure you can have 20 method calls after each other, but then you maybe should split it up again into 555 and give them four good names, right? Mm. Something like this. For me, besides seeing the structure of a, of a source code file, more important is actually the structure of the project itself. If I go to the project navigator and I see how, how, how the things are structured and, and where the files lie around. And... What I have seen or what I found out is that actually most of the projects are not structured by the domain or by the by yeah by the domain they are mostly structured on, on some some framework technology technology that's the, guidelines. That's the streaming uh, the screaming architectures, right? 
Really? And okay. the Bob calls them like that. If you open it, it's screaming, hey, I'm a web application. Ah, okay. Hey, I'm a Spring application. No, I didn't I'm notice. I'm an MVC notice. application. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there's uh, some work from uh, Sandro Mancuso on this, which he calls... Um, uh, I forgot how he calls it. Again, I will put the link in the notes. And it's about where he has a radically different structure and, and uh, following uh, okay, the domain. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Okay, how, how is it called for Michael Bob? Screaming architectures. Ah, okay. I think there was a blog post uh, because it's okay. screaming technology. Yeah. And I find it very often with clients because it's easier. I can easily put all controllers in one exactly, package, exactly, exactly. and uh, that's that's what's happening. But it's not helpful because then everything has to be accessible, and, and we're not we can't use some modularity. You say like because it's some kind of standardization in, in big companies, you you sometimes even see that all projects are structured totally totally similar, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they want to achieve more understandability or readability, but at the end they achieve exactly the difference, right? Because of course it's easier to to come up with a structure which is very technical, which is very generic, but at the end it would be much better if you come with a structure which is again DDT domain driven and and, and stuff like this, but of course this needs much more time to think about, I guess. It's also afflicted by change, right? if the if the top level structure is uh, related to business, it might change, and you cannot have one for the whole company because different departments will have different business. Yeah. That, that's interesting because we also had this discussion, and I think this is one argument you often get. But I think actually the business doesn't change that much as the technology changes. To mm-hmm. be honest, you mean the top okay. level business? Oh, yeah, if I okay. if take a look at, it, for example, mm-hmm. JavaScript also Java, I think is turning very fast now. Um, I think the business doesn't change that often. Yeah. <laughs> it's more the technology which changes. Huh? Because the core business of a company, of course, you have some adoptions maybe. You're moving right. to one direction mm-hmm. more or less. You're right. I already see a result of this discussion. So one is structure. And the second one being abstraction. Also mm-hmm. from level of detail in the source code file itself. With that, it's done this time. Paul, you were already sitting on your needles talking about what's your this time topic. <laughs> this time I want to talk about our song that we are using for our signation. In einem kleinen It's by it's a song by Hermann Leopoldi. It was a Vienna-based composer, musician in the in the beginning of the 20th, uh, 20th century. And after World War One he was a really famous person in this so-called show business of the time here in Vienna. But with the occupation um, by the Nazis of Austria, he got really in troubles. He got even imprisoned in a concentration camp, managed to get get out of it and managed to go, I think, somewhere in the 40s uh, to the USA, where he lived. And he also was rather successful there. He even took some of his old songs, also our our title song, and translated the words <coughs> into English. So it's called A Little Café Down the Street. Yeah. <laughs> and he then, sometime um, after World War II, got back to Vienna and also was successful, that's the word, mm-hmm. successful here again. 
Yeah, I think it's good to know because people tell me they like designation, and I do as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whistling along, yeah, I've, I've got it already covered for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, David, anything from it's you? It's my time. Yeah, this time, this time, yes. I read a very old book about Apache Wicket's uh, version 2, I think, which was someone released in 2005. And it's not about the book, it's not about Wicked, it's more about that I started doing this more often now. Actually, it's my, my, my third book about old, old technologies. And I really like reading books from technologies nobody uses anymore or everybody hates. For example, reading old Java Enterprise books and, and this, line, this stuff, because it really changes totally the perspective Because when you read a book from a technology when it came out, for example, 2005, Wicked 2, you will see what was the purpose of this language, how cool it was actually at this time, how people really were in favor of writing this book. Right? It's like if you, if you read the website of a new JavaScript framework, it's somehow similar. If you wouldn't know that this book is 10 years old, And if you wouldn't know that old people are now don't like this technology anymore because of course it has some drawbacks, but at, the, at, at this time maybe people didn't know it um, that well. And I, I think this is really interesting because you find a lot of the same problems people started to solve and you find that actually they had over the time issues which they never could have solved because The, the, the technologies were never there to solve these issues, right? And in the beginning, those books normally really define very well for which problems you should use this technology. And I think it's as usual if a technology is really starts to become cool and people like to use it, they start to overuse it. So they use it for all of the problems and then they start to hate it, right? <laughs> And nobody wants to do it anymore and says we shouldn't do this because we had so many problems with this. And still, I think all those technologies everybody doesn't like anymore or most of us don't like anymore have the valid use cases. And uh, that's why I do this. Um, I try to do it. Uh, every third of my, my programming books I read are books from 2005 to 2010 or something like this. So things which are still in use but, but are not the tip anymore and I'm, I'm always very excited how, how those people roll about it and how they excited they were and, and what, what, how, how it evolved over time. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> maybe my, my distant contribution just encourage people to maybe also try this once because it brings a lot of funny surprises actually. That absolutely reminds me of VB6. Yeah, for example. Life Because at related. that time, 1997, I guess, when VB6 came out, it was really cool and there was nothing yeah, similar at that time. That's and the cool thing. If you read those books, yeah. you really feel like put it back in time because you, you think that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. You read a book and you really, wow, that's cool. And then you see it in, in, in production, maybe where people used it. And you found out maybe it's not a technologies problem, it's just a usage problem. Yeah. And then we do the same mistake again. We find something which fulfills a, a problem we have at this time maybe better. And after some time, we will overuse it again. And then we will say again, okay, this yeah. is not a technology. This was not the civil the bullet again. Goes, right? Or a technology, not a programming language. Instead, if people use it without questioning 
if it is the right tool for the job. It's this theory of constraints, right? If it's, mm. if things are constrained, they're more useful. Exactly. If they are unconstrained, yeah, yeah. Exactly. they are too, too open and it will yeah. not work out. So, so I like constraints. As you know, I like static code analysis and I would put all the rules on the codes. I think constraints are healthy and dogma is good for you. So, Paul, what do you want to bring to this episode in our second topic? For the second topic of this episode, we want to talk about how to get started using TDD in a project where this is not widely used, where you maybe are the single person that wants to drive the TDD adoption in the project. So what can be your levers that you can can use to get your colleagues up on the on the bandwagon of doing TDD. So I guess there are several f situations that you could think about how the situation is that you're observing. If you're into a project that is, has really great problems with the quality, with the external quality of the project, so really many bugs, many problems, customers calling, managers angry, uh, it might be, on the one hand, be easier to introduce something quality-related as TDD. On the other hand, it could be you can find a team that is really freaking out and firefighting all the time, so that it might be even <coughs> harder for them to get into this. And on the other hand, if you have a rather new project, it might be easier to try new things. Maybe you've tried another framework yeah. another platform so you're maybe more open to try new things yes and i want to talk about and ask you what are your experiences what what, what is a good point to start uh more programming that's what i normally try to do then with those people there that we just find one afternoon each sprint where we just stay together and write code on a big screen together and it's normally a good way if you uh, like TDD and if you have the right use case for it to just show that it's possible right it's not just one thing you can do in a, at a carter you can really do it on real projects that's what I sometimes miss when people do it and they do it in the free time and they do it on cards but when it comes back to the real project maybe to the legacy code yeah, hacking it's again over, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I think you need to do this, 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 um, yeah, Sorry. I think we need to defer here between two things. The first one is if you really have some, some kind of greenfield, which is much easier. And on the other hand, the total opposite, where you just do some bug fixing on, on a real big legacy system, which is maybe not written in a way that you can really test it, it very nicely. So that the second one is, is much harder, I think, and for yeah, it depends on the experience. And I would also guess it's far more common that you <coughs> end up in a in a project that is already ongoing. Yeah, for sure, it can be ongoing, but maybe you write a new component which is somehow greenfield in the brownfield or something like mm -hmm. this. Or if you really have the, the the use case that you need to fix bugs because you get five new Jira tickets each day, and that's what you need to do, right? And of course, then you just change some some equal sign to equal, to, to something else, and then it's of course harder to 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 do it in a TDD way if it's really somewhere 
inside a 500 line cloth. Right? Okay, you mean because in, in such cases it will be far more effort to, just to get to the point to write the first test? No, not even effort, I think it just needs more experience. You need more resources to get to the point to write your first test compare, in comparison to simply knowing, okay, it's exactly this line, I need to change this one character and it's done. Exactly, yeah. So, okay, then, then it's... I would say again the, the the fallacy of the arguments of the immediate issues that you have with that with that you you don't want to do test driven development because with our code base we're so special it's not possible to do that why because the project hasn't been, hasn't been set up this way mm -hmm. so you would rather have to see about long term benefits which is so this point for me rather goes into the direction of what are the benefits what are the the, the discussion on benefits of test driven development it's interesting because your first idea was. How can you teach your colleagues, uh, David? Now, Christian, your idea is how can I sell it to my colleagues? Like, right. yeah, what's the benefits? Is is like selling? It's not because if I can explain the benefits, then they might also get interested, which is a valid approach. Also, so I can start teaching them. I can sell them the benefits. So, what's the point why we are doing it? Um, Though at least I wanted to point out that it's not my point about being benefits. I rather want to. a valid point. Maybe not your point. But I, I don't like selling. I, I would phrase it more like getting their commitment because they believe in it that it really brings benefits. Right? Selling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, aligning. Selling is for me something like okay, you give it to him. He thinks it's good, but he doesn't yeah. really believe it. And I think if you really want to have TGT here and TGT mindset in a team, people really have this commitment, they need to, to have this feeling that when they do this in TDD it, it produces maybe better source code quality or produces better tests or produces higher quality. Right? Just telling it do it uh, doesn't bring any benefit at all. Right? I think you cannot you cannot force somebody to do something. And I think it's also not maybe it's hard to, to decide for me but maybe for some people it's really easier to write tests afterwards and they're more happy with this and they like this approach more and they even produce better tests afterwards I, I don't know maybe it's just not the tool for everyone or do you think everybody every developer would produce higher quality if he does DDD because I'm not thinking like this to be honest, I often see myself thinking about should I do this in a TDD approach and then sometimes I decide no because I think it makes no sense in this way. Maybe it's very UI um, driven code or it's it's very simple code. I don't know. I don't have any good examples now. But I sometimes have the feeling that I will not do this TDD now. Yeah, I don't think that you have to be religious about it. Exactly, exactly. So it's one tool if you if you find yourself in exactly. a situation where you can feel the benefits of using TDD, then of course use it. But then you have to know that it is that there are yeah, benefits yeah. and you know yeah, the mechanics yeah, about doing like it. I'm kind of getting distracted here. When you want to get started, I think you need to be strict. Sure, 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 sure. To get started, yeah, absolutely. Until you get some idea, yeah. So that's, uh, yeah. But that's but you simple. have to be aware if you are in an existing project with a big legacy code base and people that for years are working there without using any testing or without using any TDD, that being strict mm -hmm. is not and, and strict means hundred percent strict is not an, a real option. No, it's not an option. Yeah. So that's maybe a. Uh, 
what my approach would be, it's like, I think it's called the first rule of Agile, start with yourself. So uh, if you want to introduce TDD to a project team, then maybe do it yourself for some time and because then you will see the problems all the others will have. Exactly as you said, the code wasn't written in a way that it's easily testable or I cannot write tests for certain things because it's too expensive and I just need to change an equal sign and it takes me two minutes, but it takes me three days to write the first test. So that's... that's um, I would say that would be my first step. <laughs> do it yourself, and then after some time, you're becoming kind of an icon, and you know how to do it, and mm -hmm. and then you can go from there. And I would append to it, and don't talk too much about it at the first time. So don't say, don't run around with the flag. Hey, I am the TDD <laughs> guy, and look at this commit because I did the test here, and there is no production code because I'm doing test first, and I'm so awesome, and people are staring at you and maybe have no idea what you're talking about or think you're crazy, no, or, or, or even go, selling, or even go to the manager and ask him if you are allowed to. No? So that's, I think, not a good way to start it. I, I, I know you didn't in, um, intense this, but I want just to add it. Maybe just do it, show the benefits afterwards. So if something is already here that is beneficial and can be understood of everybody on the team. I guess the first benefit would be if something breaks then. And it, I guess it, it also relates to the team culture it's, itself, how, how I would say hostile you would think they, that yeah. they would be. Yeah. In terms of, I know you, you start writing tests on your own, perhaps you're even only on your own machine because committing them to the repository makes them visible to the other people if you have an, somehow code reviews or a necessary or I don't know a, a lead developer who looks at all the commits and is more I don't know uh, stringent against them if you will the culture then also dictates on, on mm -hmm. how, how much you are able to or immediately expose like you said Paul not to run around and uh, expressing the joy of writing your first test but yet also possibly that you have to be under under the radar for a longer time, for a longer period, if it's more dangerous to expose than say, and I don't know, for instance, you find your first commit where something breaks your test that you've written, and then you immediately say, hey, by the way, this broke the test, and then they would, I don't know, mm -hmm. could happen that they feel attacked, that you monitor them in some degree, and watch over the step, what have you done. Well, but I think there could be a really good conversation to say, okay, Listen, I, I found a problem in our code base and I found it because of my tests. Mm. And we, we can fix it now before it goes out to production. I think there could be a good conversation. I'm not sure if it's reasonable to start in an environment where you expect hostility, like where, where your colleagues uh, will be actively work against you. That's, I think that's no point in doing there is no point. If you can't commit your tests because someone will complain and you will uh, get uh, reduced pay because you didn't deliver some features, so that's uh, mm, not that's, yeah, it's not. Yeah, sure. not do it. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah, do it. Go to for another project. I would yeah. Search <laughs> search another that's job. That's what I would yeah. say. <laughs> well, maybe say that uh, it's easy for us uh, maybe to find another project, but it's that hostile and. Don't try it. Mm. There has to be some, uh, see some option of that you're tolerated, or maybe there's a mild uh, acceptance, and then you can do the things like doing a mobbing session, do a demo, or, or 
Yeah, that's, so that's what I meant earlier. I think it's a mindset thing. If you have people who want to learn it, it's easy. If you have people who don't want to know about it or who think it's not a good idea, then you can try to somehow convince them. But for this, that's what you meant. I think you also need experience. It's not good if you just write some blog post and you say we should do this because we read about it, right? Um, and if they just don't want to do it, even if you try to convince them, then you shouldn't do it, right? So maybe it's another. Uh, sorry, would be no problem. Uh, maybe another starting point is get help, like. Uh, get some budget, uh, get some training, exactly, yeah, sure. uh, get some training for a few people that could be interested, like you're in a, in a team and there are two or three enthusiastic people and you have some private discussion and try to get training for a small group, kind of spearhead the effort and, and see where it's going. Because mm -hmm. exactly as you say, uh, talking about it but having no idea how it's done, that, mm -hmm. that will not help. But that's a good uh, because sometimes you have the feeling that something goes wrong in, in the project or in the team because you lack some kind of experience. And then what you could, of course, do, you could spend your free time, read things up on the internet, could try it on your own, could try it, start trying it in the project. But of course, this takes much more time, right? And maybe a good solution would be just really find someone who can explain you, train you as a team if you don't have or anybody. As the people and from the team that are interested, okay. usually that's enough if there are two or three or five out mm. of ten or something that will say, okay, let's look. Um, just for my curiosity, where did you first come into contact with TDD unit testing? Unit testing or TDD? I don't know. The first time I came in contact with TDD, I think it was even you at the university where I was at this time. You had a with session you? where you did... Ah, Peter, sorry. <laughs> People cannot see it, you're right, yeah. Um, and you made a session about TDD and and you brought, of course, this, this simple calcul data example, right? The prime practice. Yeah, uh, prime practice, exactly. Because I can do it in 10 minutes. Yeah, so yeah, it was totally yeah. cool. But... Then I came home and tried it on my own. I tried it on a project I was currently doing, and I found out I cannot do this, right? <laughs> it's impossible. I don't know how I did it, but it doesn't work on this code base. And of course, then you learn to write code in a way that it's testable, and, and, and if you have this possibility, then you can start thinking, I think, of, of writing tests up front. Because if you do it on the other way around, then you think, I think you will end up in this TDD stat dilemma where you write code in a way that it's testable but you still don't write it in a good way. You know what I mean? There was this um, series of, 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 I think, videos on, on mm -hmm. YouTube. Um, it was started by Ruby and Rails guy. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And he brought exactly up this topic, right? TDD stat because people starting to write code in a way that it's just testable but it's still not yeah, really good code anymore. I think you called it the test-induced damage design or damage. design damage. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think it's not the problem. It wasn't the problem of DDT. It's a, it's a problem of general skill. For sure. It is. It's like but it's it's design, but I, I think you already talked about the fever, the days you're applying it everywhere. It's like design patterns fever. or Maybe there is. I have never heard it, but there is probably a TDT fever. So when you learn it and then you use for it sure, everywhere, for sure, yes. it, is. it doesn't yeah. make sense, it doesn't help you. But when I first got in touch with it, uh, I think it, it was, was this idea. 
uh, this this session, and then of course the the, the coding dojos in Vienna, where we normally apply DDD rules. Hmm. But you know, David, it makes you the like the success of my life. Christian, what was your first contact? My first contact with test-driven development was one where I didn't do the test-driven development. Well, uh, rather, it was at a point where I, ignore, I, I essentially ignored it. I had a colleague who implemented a new, or had to re-implement a, a legacy code, a legacy library that we had used in our product for years and had to get rid of in order to get rid of all the legacy code that we had. And... He did it with the help of test-driven development, by the, also following the original book by Ken Beck. And I ignored it. I didn't even realize what it was about. And he then came back and said, well, the library is ready now. And by the way, I developed it, I developed it using test-driven development. This was in C++ back then. I just shrugged and said, okay, whatever, it works. I didn't, I didn't look at it and didn't realize what it was about. So this was my first contact with test-driven development. When did I really get to test-driven development was then when I came to a team, when I changed from that particular team to one that already had unit tests. And so already the, the realization about uh, having a framework of tests and automated tests and whatnot, and this was already a big revelation to me. Okay, Peter? I think I was at the time, and uh, maybe I was... Uh, developing for a few years and then I suddenly noticed that hey I didn't learn anything new in, in some time and I started ordering some books on the company and there was some other it's a related book uh, Ken Beck sounds reasonable let's buy it and so uh, I had done uh, unit tests before so that wasn't new to me well, actually a lot of tests before so I read the book and did the exercise and gradually did more and more of it uh, on uh, like this what you described Christian a library that's re-implemented it's a perfect uh, yeah, exactly. uh, ground to get started exactly. so like, exactly. as you also said in the beginning kind of green field next to the brown field so yeah. something new or when I was uh, creating certain um, prototypes functions without dependencies so that's, that's a good start and, and also this use case where you had a library and you should write it again and it should work again Completely the same way as it worked before, right? These are, I think, very good requirements for doing it in a TDD yeah, approach because absolutely. then you can really write down what should be done again after you implement it mm. new, right? That's, that's and good. then I think I did a lot of code cutters and uh, yeah, it's a still evolving topic, mm. but that's another thing. So you asked for the first uh, contact, I think I just uh, stumbled upon the book mm. from Kenbeck. Yes, for me, I can remember pretty well because I was sitting in a, in a project room with a colleague and we talked about over the computer how he would handle a situation and I said, oh, I would just write a simple console application and see if it works and he said, oh, no, why, why not just write a unit test? And I thought, oh, yeah, I've heard about it and I have no clue how to do it. I don't know the tooling. I knew there were some in the code base, but I haven't really looked at it and... And so I started to, to do it and I had the feeling that I had no clue about it, what was correct at that time, absolutely. And so I, I looked for a book and the book that really was the, 
the introduction for me, the very first was um, the art of unit testing by Roy Orsharov. Yeah, but th this was the first contact with unit testing for you, or TDD. With TDD, yeah. So with really the the benefits, the mechanics, ah, okay. mm -hmm. the do's and don'ts, and it was really, it was really, I think, a good starting point for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, so. It was it. We we had a lot of in of inputs how to get started, what maybe to avoid, what options we have. So let's not be shy and be the one that is that runs around shouting that he's now doing TDD. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm doing TDD. <laughs> Don't forget to print the shirt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, it was uh, quite interesting. Thank you for the discussions. Is there some text? Thank you. Goodbye. Have a nice evening. Yeah, because this was the fifth episode of Developer Melange.